Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're bringing you some of the messages that you've sent us over the past couple of weeks. Uh, Rob, if you're ready, do you want to jump right in reading this message from Ian about our Punish the Machine episodes? All right. Ian writes, Dear Robin Joe, I'm still way behind, still working to catch up. I went for a week-long vacation, which was wonderful. But one side effect was that I lost some of the ground I'd been making up. Oh, c'est la vie. C'est la vie. C'est la vie. I'm sorry. C'est la vie. C'est la vie. What what does c'est la vie mean? Uh, I think that's life. That's life. Okay. Um, So, yeah, that is life. It's hard to keep up with all these podcasts. I can't keep up with all these podcasts. We can't keep up with all these podcasts. Listening to us really should be a full-time job. You're not taking it seriously if you're not doing eight hours a day. Anyway, Ian continues, in your Punish the Machine episode, you spent a decent amount of time discussing who would be held responsible if an intelligent machine, such as a self-driving car, injured someone. You didn't mention what, to me as an attorney, seems like the obvious avenue, no pun intended, product liability law. (laughs) This is obviously a gross oversimplification of a complicated area of law, but the basic idea is if a product is defective or malfunctions in a way that harms someone, the manufacturer is responsible. A problem caused by the decision-making of a smart device just seems to me like another form of malfunction or defect. Rather than trying to develop novel legal mechanisms to modify the behavior of the machines themselves, you simply apply the coercive pressure, because all law is fundamentally coercive in some way, to the manufacturer, usually a corporate entity, in order to motivate them to uh, try to avoid problems and to try to correct them when they do arise. In fact, there is at least one real-world example that is strikingly similar to the self-driving car situation, the recent crashes of the Boeing 737 MAX airliner. Those crashes were caused by the autopilot, which is a smart system, mistakenly concluding the plane was nearing a stall condition when the airspeed drops too low for the wings to maintain lift, and attempting to force the nose of the plane down to correct the perceived problem. In this situation, Boeing has been held responsible for the malfunctions and the ensuing deaths, imposing monetary penalties and possible criminal prosecution to Boeing rather than the plane allows the law uh, to focus its efforts on the entity it, at least in theory, has the ability to influence. This also sidesteps the problem you discussed in trying to determine which specific person is responsible. Even if there is no identifiable individual, the business entity can be held accountable. How effective modern law is at holding corporations accountable is a different discussion. (laughs) Individuals are only responsible for their parts of the process, but the company is responsible for the whole. Thank you again for your wonderful discussions. I hope one day to catch up. Ian. Yes, we too. We too hope one day to catch up, Ian. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thanks for your input, Ian. Well, so Ian, uh, obviously, I agree with a lot of what you say there, except that, well, I agree in the sense that um, I think a lot of what you say seems like probably, in many cases, what the law should be. But, uh, but I think a lot of the complications that are raised by the main paper that we talked about in that episode, the Remedies for Robots paper, is about what kinds of avenues of sort of appeals to the court systems that corporations who make these machines will be able to use in order to evade responsibility. Uh, and they might sound plausible to some people. They might say that um, 
with a certain level of complexity in certain kinds of machines, it actually becomes increasingly difficult to identify whether what happened is uh, a result of manufacturer defect, you know, a problem with the machine itself as it left the factory versus how it was being used by the user and, and that kind of thing. And then, of course, as you as you raise, there are some difficulties with getting actual, you know, the the effect that you want of the law by trying to enforce penalties on corporations rather than on individuals. Because uh, I remember one of the things we talked about in the episode is like, well, does a, <laughs> you know, are there going to be situations where a corporation says, eh, you know, we're going to make a lot of money off this if at some point we have to pay some damages on it? That's just the cost of doing business. Yeah, and I believe we also discussed how that that can potentially be the AI's approach as well. That can be the machine's yeah. approach. Well, like that, well, that's the operating cost of doing what I'm doing. Uh, I'm going to have to pay fines on, you know, whatever it is I'm doing uh, that is uh, out of line. Right. And that also comes into when you're trying to program a robot not to do something that is considered in some way prohibited, something that is bad, uh, there are these differences in the philosophy of how you encode prohibitions, right? Uh, th this was a big theme we talked about in these episodes. Do you encode the prohibitions as inviolable rules or do you encode them as like uh, sort of disincentives with a certain numerical value that's hard to overcome? And there, there are uh, good arguments on both sides of that. So anyway, Ian, since you are a lawyer, I, I might recommend uh, if you want to send us any more thoughts on this, that you actually just read the full Remedies for Robots paper and, and tell us more about what you think about their complete argument, uh, which you know we, we just discussed some parts of. All right. Well, now you've got the you've got the mailbot Carney all hot and bothered over this uh, this talk. <laughs> what else do we have in the the mailbag, Joe? Oh, okay. So next, I wanted to get into a number of responses to the most recent artifact episode I did, which was called The Sugar Light. Now, this was an artifact in which I talked about uh, mentions of anomalous sources of cold light in Sir Francis Bacon's 1620 work, Novum Organum. And Rob, I assume you haven't had a chance to listen to my artifact episode yet, but I'll, I'll try to summarize for you so we can talk about it. The The Novum Organum was a book in which Bacon was trying to lay out a new method for logical investigation of the world. And in many ways, this the, the method described in this book could be considered proto-scientific, since his method is, in essence, empirical and inductive. So, uh, for example, it, it, it says, if you want to understand something, you should try to use, you know, use observation from the real world to list every instance you can of the phenomenon you're trying to understand. And then you should list properties that are associated with it. So in the example of heat, that would be stuff like light. And then you can list a bunch of examples of things that have that associated property, but not the property you're studying. So uh, occurrences of light without heat and so forth. And, and he thinks that this ultimately can help you understand nature better. Uh, but so this leads to a section of the book where he's just listing a, b a bunch of examples of cold light, light that doesn't actually burn like the, the hot light from the sun or from a fire. And so I talked about some of the examples that he lists uh, in this artifact episode. He lists the uh, appearances of fire around the, the heads of, of children sometimes, like fire around the head or the hair that appears to be not hot and not burning, just a kind of halo effect. Uh, not sure what to make of that, except it may be a, a, just a general, you know, it may tie into some of the lore that we discussed in our episodes on the, the history of halos and halo imagery. Uh, but then he also talked about some really strange stuff 
Um, one was the idea that a flash without any evident heat, quote, has sometimes been seen about a horse when sweating at night. So I was like, what is the deal with the, the flashes of light from a sweaty horse? That's sweaty horse light. Yeah. And then also I, I mentioned a few others. But uh, for, for the rest of the artifact episode, I talked about the claim of light being emitted from scraped or crushed sugar, which is, in fact, entirely real as a phenomenon, something you can see for yourself by crushing sugar cubes in a darkened room. Um, but I mentioned that I didn't know what to make of a few of the other things he talks about, especially the sweaty horse. But another one, which is that he says that light sometimes flashes from an oar slapping in seawater at night. And listeners got in touch about these with some ideas about what he might have been talking about. The one with the oar slapping water turned out to be relatively easy, I think. Several listeners suggested that this might be a result of bioluminescent plankton. Uh, so in, as an example of this type of message, Eric got in touch to say, Robert and Joe, longtime listener, first-time emailer. The glow caused by an oar slapping the water sounds like bioluminescent plankton to me. Love the show, Eric. And John also got in touch to say, you mentioned light being emitted when an ore strikes the water. This is actually a common example of bioluminescence in the ocean caused by microorganisms in the water. This can also occur in rolling waves when the agitation is enough to stir them up and sometimes even in calm water. Uh, so obviously we've talked about all kinds of bioluminescent marine organisms on the show before, but I suppose I didn't connect Bacon's claim to bioluminescent organisms because I was focused on the detail of the glow occurring when the ore slaps the water. Like, why would an ore striking the water have anything to do with the onset of the light? Uh, I'd never heard of this, but I did some more digging, and I think the listeners probably are correct here that actually hitting the water or mechanically disturbing it in some way can sometimes cause the plankton to light up. And as one very easy-to-consume example of this, I found a Q&A on the ASU website by a marine biologist named Amy Hansen that connects plankton bioluminescence to mechanical disturbance. Uh, and so Hansen writes uh, that one example of bioluminescent algae is a dinoflagellate called noctiluca or sea sparkle. Noctiluca are so small that thousands of them can fit in a single drop of water. In places like Bioluminescent Bay in Puerto Rico, sea sparkle are so abundant that the water sparkles neon blue at night when you run your hand or a kayak paddle through it. Uh, so there it's actually associating the disturbance of the water with the light coming on. And, uh, and she actually also cites a couple of reasons that might be the cause of the light coming on due to mechanical disturbance. One is the idea that, okay, a predator swims through the water and then the light comes on to startle or scare the predator away. Another possible explanation is that these dinoflagellates use the light to attract bigger predators that would eat their own predators. Mm. So I'm, I'm handing it to the listeners who got in touch on that one. I, I'd say I'm fairly confident that this is exactly what Bacon was talking about with the oar slapping the water. But the sweaty horse, on the other hand, uh, <laughs> I feel like that one's still a lot more mysterious, though we did get one response taking a stab at the sweaty horse. Uh, Rob, do you want to read this one? Sure, this is the one from Steven. Yeah. Hi, Rob and Joe. I've been a fan of your show for quite some time, and I'm probably more excited than I should be that I might be able to contribute in some small fashion. The glowing sweaty horse, all caps, in the recent artifact episode about sugar light may be much simpler than it sounds. 
Horses tend to sweat profusely when working hard, so much so that their entire body becomes drenched. A hot, sweaty horse in cool, dry air can create what looks like a cloud of mist around its body as the sweat evaporates. I live in an area with a large Amish population, and it is not uncommon on dry winter days to see a sweaty horse doing a decent impression of a fog machine simply due to the evaporating sweat. (laughs) A steamy horse may not look special under the bright light of the sun, but perhaps a wisp of vapor catching moonlight directly or via reflection from a pond or stream may look like a brief flash of light from a short distance. I was unable to find any good photos of this. Perhaps the market for sweaty horse pictures is underserved. (laughs) But I've included a link to a stock photo that shows the general idea, but is likely edited to look much more dramatic than it is in reality. This is just a wild guess, but old uh, writing tends to portray things in a much more fantastic way than we might today. And they include this wonderful photo of a sweaty horse with this mist coming off of it. Or what you know looks to be a mist coming off. It looks it looks like it is a, a a magical horse that has come out of some misty realm and is therefore emitting the mist. It's quite beautiful. I, I feel like I'm about to see it flanked by a hopping vampire at any moment. Yeah, I love it, Stephen. Anyway, so I think this is. I don't know if you're right, but this is a a fantastic attempt at an answer. Thank you so much to all the listeners who got in touch with uh, ideas about the glowing the glowing or slaps and the sweaty horses. I, I, this is just great. All right, this next message comes from Daniel. This one just seems general. Uh, Daniel says, Hi, Robert and Joe. First off, love the show. Thanks for all you guys do. I don't understand people who listen to music while driving. I love the way you guys engage my brain. (laughs) Um, There are two topics I've been thinking about recently, and I wondered if you guys had either already done something about them in the past or might in the future. One, a number of times I've come across mentions of different types of ice, both in your shows and in science fiction I read. Most recently, I picked the episode on Pycrete out of the show History, and you mentioned there that we have one specific type of ice naturally occurring here on Earth, so what are the others? Where can they be found, or how can they be made, and how are they different from what we already know? Second, glass elevators make me nauseous. (laughs) My work recently moved into a new building that has glass elevators, and every time I ride one down, I have to close my eyes to avoid nausea. No one else I know has this problem. What's going on here? Going up doesn't cause any issue, and normal enclosed elevators don't bother me at all. Thanks. Well, to take your second question first, I don't know, but I wonder if it has anything to do with... Uh, with, I don't know, something akin to, to simulator sickness, which we've talked about in previous episodes, but maybe this will mm-hmm. be worth coming back to, uh, in another episode because I, I can imagine that's not too uncommon of a feeling. I likewise don't have any problem in regular closed elevators, but I, I feel like when I've been in transparent elevators before I've gotten, I don't know about nauseous, but definitely a little woozy. Uh, but, but as for ice, Rob, I know we have talked about different types of ice before i can't remember what the scientific term for the different ice configurations is but i think it has to do with the uh the different crystalline structure of ice is that right like ice you know the different numbers applied to ice one two three four and so forth yeah i mean i thought we got into it maybe a little bit in pycrete and maybe a a little bit more as well in our episode on heavy water Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Daniel, you might want to go check out that that episode on heavy water if you haven't heard that. I think we talked about it in there. But 
I'm, I'm doing this from memory, so I'm, I'm sorry if I'm wrong, but I think the issue is just that uh, the different phases of ice have different crystalline structures, usually because they're formed under very extreme conditions that are not present on Earth, say, is it like really high pressure or something. Yeah. So I don't know. We'll, we'll have to look at it. It's possible that we could do an, an, an episode on alternative waters. Uh, I mean, alternative ices, rather. Uh, but uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. All right. Well, let's close it out with one bit of Weird House Cinema Lister Mail. This one comes to us from Charles. Hi, Robert and Joe. I hope this email finds you healthy and well. I came across your podcast last year and just got to your Weird House Cinema episode on Gunhead. Had it not been for the fact that I'm able to listen to podcasts at work, I'd probably still be very far behind. The added effort to answer listener mail is nice because everyone writing in has such interesting information to share. As a first-time writer, I hope I can add to that as well. Anyway, during the Gunhead episode, you mentioned there were one or two scenes where one of the characters was waving or pointing their gun at another character. When they were told to stop, you both were a bit confused as to the reasoning the character gave and just concluded it was likely because it was dangerous. Although this is inherently true for safety, I believe that there is also a cultural significance, and I hope to shed some light on it. Growing up in an East Asian family, my parents always emphasized the idea of karma. This not only included physical actions, but also extended to acts such as gossiping about others, or in this case, pointing a weapon at someone even in jest. The idea being that even a benign gesture is still looked at as you wishing ill fortune on that person and will count as bad karma. Although this doesn't follow the traditional definition of karma, which focuses on you being the recipient of your own actions coming back to you later in life, it revolves around the karma you wish on others. I haven't watched Gunhead, so I don't know the nuance of the scene, but this is my best guess based on your description. Thank you for all the recent topics you cover in your podcasts. I always know I'm in for a knowledge expansion when I turn on your podcast. Many thanks, Charles. Oh, thank you, Charles. To be honest, I do not remember what scene you're talking about. (laughs) Oh no, no! I remember it. There's so we have uh, we have the old guy, the one who's played by the cool prog rock dude. Um, oh, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, and um, I, I'm blanking on his name offhand, but anyway, he he's the the wise member of the crew that's going to run this uh, uh, this gig uh, that's going to try and uh, steal the stuff from the, um, the, the, the 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 robot place. You know, the robot <laughs> island. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, they're horsing Club around mech. with a gun. Yeah. Yeah. Club mech. <laughs> Uh, and he's he's like, what are you doing? Don't point that at, at people. You're you know that's uh, you know there's no good. You know he's 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 shutting him down every time he does it. And we were like, well, yeah, that makes sense. You shouldn't point guns at people. That's not safe. Uh, but it does seem like yeah, I, I feel like Charles is making a, a fair point here. It sounds like maybe it is verse two in uh, in, a, in an idea of of of, of ill karma and uh, you know the the, the super that would that mm-hmm. would track with mm-hmm. some some other stuff I think I've heard before. So, Charles, thank you for writing in and, um, and illuminating Gunhead further. It is, a, it, is, it is a text that deserves more illumination. Yes, sincere thanks. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and close up the mailbag for today. But we thank, we thank everybody for writing in. We read everything that comes in. We don't always have time to respond, and we don't have time to include everything on listener mail. Uh, but keep it coming. Uh, we love hearing uh, on these topics, uh, we love hearing about everyone's experiences uh, uh, with these topics and, uh, and and your insight. In the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail, well, that happens every Monday. We have core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Wednesday is The Artifact. Friday is, is Weird House Cinema. That's our time to cut loose and enjoy a weird film. And then we have a rerun on the weekend. And then on Sunday, the seventh day, 
we rest or we run a promo for some other show that's depends what what's what's required of us frantically get ready for the first day again yes (laughs) um yeah so huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other uh to uh to uh suggest a topic for the future that's what you can do or you can just say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.